Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. I didn't introduce myself before, so let me do that now. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. It's good to see so many of you. Uh, We uh, took a few weeks away from what we've been doing uh, for the better part of the last year, which is working our way through the book of Romans. Uh, We just stepped away for a little bit to talk about a few topics uh, because we believe, uh, we know actually, uh, that we're entering into a time of transition in our church. As you have seen this morning, lots of change. And so we want to be ready. We want to be ready with the willingness to meet the opportunities and the challenges ahead. And so I've been trying for the last few weeks to stir us up, uh, to cast some vision, you know, lay out some architectural plans for some things that we need to consider and stir us up towards service, towards generosity, towards uh, the children and teenagers and young adults in in our church. And I I just realized, kind of in the middle of doing that, that I, whether you know this to be true of me or not, it is, I am prone to the idols of success and achievement, so I'm very prone. I was reading this week and struck by this. I'm very prone to become a pastor who's going around recruiting the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. And, uh, and where, I, where I'm, I'm doing that, I'm trying to, to repent of that and, and, and pull back away from that. And so today, and I had intended to do this all along, but I think it's fitting. Uh, today I wanted to remind us that for all the work I've been calling us to do, to get ready for, that the real work is to learn to lie down on green pastures. That's the real work. And that, that is that the message of the gospel on this Sabbath day that we've gathered here to, to worship him on is that we should cease from all our work and revel in the wonder of God's kingdom that's advancing in the world, really, without much help from us, truth be told. So this text in Romans uh, chapter 8 that proclaims this great truth for us, you see it there, that we are God's children, and therefore we have no reason to be afraid. And so we're coming back into Romans, and we're going to go into Romans chapter 9 starting next week. If you're excited about that, then that's, I'm not going to avoid it. I promise we're going to get there. Uh, But we have one more week in kind of the warm confines of the warm and cozy bed here of Romans chapter 8. I've been, um, and I'm going to do something this morning that I think is uh, unique and I'm I'm actually a little bit nervous about too. So bear with me as I kind of stumble through this for a minute. I've been reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a famous preacher in the 20th century, probably the famous, the most famous um, reformed preacher of the mid 20th century in all the world. He's a pastor in London at, at at a big church there. And on Friday nights from 1955 to 1968, so for 13 years, he preached through the the letter to the Romans, in addition, by the way, to preaching on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. So uh, you can buy the whole series of his sermons. It's 13 volumes. It's about 500 sermons. It's about 6,000 pages of of sermons. And so as we've we've been going through Romans, I've been making my way through those sermons, uh, because I've just had experiences with him over the years. His, his sermons on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 really uh, changed my life. And uh, in college, I read them in college, believe it or not, uh, when Jonathan was my roommate. 
and uh, we would stay up reading theological texts and saying, isn't that, I mean, we were nerds. And so, um, uh, but I read those in college, and really, uh, a lot of the reason that I uh, am now a preacher of the gospel is due to just, just experiencing his preaching of those sermons. Just two or three years ago, I read a book that he wrote called, uh, it's really a compilation of, of sermons called Spiritual Depression. And um, if there's a book for our times, it is that book. And in that book, he makes a case uh, that there's something lacking in Christianity today. That there really is, even, and I think even more so today than in the 1960s when he preached those sermons, that there is, in his words, an unhappiness of the soul that has seemed, so spiritual depression, an unhappiness of the soul that seemed to settle on the people of faith. That there is too little joy and too little peace and therefore too little power in, in the lives of those who claim to have faith in Christ. And this came home to me, uh, to be honest, in my theological studies in seminary as we dug into the scriptures and as we dug into church history. Uh, I just was struck by the fact that there was a spiritual vitality of the saints of old, whether in the New Testament or even you know throughout the history of the church, that modern Christians seem to be without. And now what happens to me is every year as we read through the book of Acts in the New Testament, I go through a little mini crisis of faith because there is so little resemblance between the American evangelical church in the 21st century and the church of the first century. And I think we theologically explain that away in ways that I don't think we should. And so that led me to another of, of Lloyd-Jones's books called uh, Joy Unspeakable. And in Joy Unspeakable, he makes an argument that the events of Acts chapter 2, which of course today is Pentecost, and so we've already noted that passage, and, uh, and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about the giving of the Spirit because it's important. Uh, he makes an argument that though in one sense, please hear me carefully here because this is going to be important, though in one sense, uh, what you read there is an unrepeatable, these are big words, eschatological event, in another sense, what you read in Acts chapter 2 is something that happens to the church periodically throughout history. In fact, if you read carefully in Acts, it happens repeatedly in the book of Acts. It happens there in Acts 2. If you read in Acts 4, it happens again in Acts 4. It happens again in Acts 8. It happens again in Acts 10. It happens again in Acts 19. This coming of the Spirit upon people in powerful ways. And so... Um, this, I think, and this is the case that Lloyd-Jones makes, that, that what you see happening in, in the text there is the solution to the anemic spirituality of Western Christianity. Because what you have in Acts, Acts is um, the church in revival. It's the church in the grips of revival. The spirit coming down in power upon those people who believe in Christ Jesus. And, and what you see in Acts... Uh, at least Lloyd-Jones makes the case, and, and most of, most, you know, even Reformed scholars and theologians throughout the history of the church have made the case that Acts, though in some sense is a one-time, unique, significant eschatological event, it is also something that's possible today. It is normative, but only periodically so, in times of revival. And so about two and a half uh, years ago, two years ago, I started to talk internally with our leaders about revival. Uh, for the past year, maybe a couple of years, I've been praying for revival. And, and because you can grow a church through programs, 
Uh, you can have the best worship service. You can have all of the children's ministry stuff. You can do all these kinds of things that people are looking for. And you can really grow a church that way. But if you do grow a church that way, it usually produces lots of people but very little power. And our desire is to grow the church through a genuine experience of revival. That's what we would ask God to do. And it doesn't just happen, okay? That's the thing. I said it's normative, but it's only periodically normative in, time, in times of unusual spiritual activity. It's, it doesn't just happen. We have to want it. We have to pray for it. And in order to do that, we have to know what it is. So that's why I wanted to talk about this this morning. We've just finished preaching through Romans 8. And so in Lloyd-Jones' commentaries on Romans 8, and especially these verses, these, these three verses, 15, 16, and 17 here, he makes an aside, which he's kind of want to do in, in, in when he preaches. But um, he, wants, he, he makes an aside. It takes about 250 pages. So he took about a three months or something like that to explain that this, what Paul's writing about in these verses, that this is it. That this is really what you see happening to the church on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That they had this kind of experience with the Spirit. An extraordinary, beyond the normal, coming down of the Holy Spirit that caused them to experience their sonship. If you see, that's the title of the sermon. To experience their sonship in a way that propelled them forward in, in mission and joy and power. Revival. And for centuries, the church has commemorated Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, as we do today, because what happened to the church in Acts 2 is in some sense still available to us and it is the solution to our spiritual weariness and so that's why i want to talk about it for a few minutes this morning <clears throat> excuse me i have a tickle in my throat and so if you see there the outline that i've given to you i'd like to look at these three verses in the context of acts chapter 2 and other places in the scripture and just ask about this word use whatever word you want to my word is revival uh, and i know that comes loaded up with meaning so we'll we'll try to deal with that but i want to talk about how it comes, what it is, and why we need it. So this coming of the Spirit in Acts 2, and then again in Acts 4, and, and on in chapter 10 and 19, how does it come, what is it when it comes, and why do we need it, or what does it produce when it comes? Those three things. So you have them there in the outline that I've given to you. So let's just walk through uh, this text and really kind of glance at a lot of the New Testament teaching on this under those three headings, okay? How, how first, how does... How does this come? How does, what are the conditions for uh, the kind of thing I'm talking about here? And so to answer that question, we have to talk first about how you become a Christian. Uh, because the two are connected. So if you would look in the text, beginning in verse 15, you see Paul says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, notice very carefully, Paul says, You did not receive again. Okay, it's a little bit different in the ESV, but, but what the translation really says is, is you did not receive again the spirit of slavery to fear. So his, his point is that Christianity is the process of growing out of your fear and into your belovedness. Can I say that again? I mean, Christianity really is growing in grace, growing in Christ really is the process of Growing out of your natural fearfulness and, and into a sense of your belovedness. That's the whole journey in summary. It's, it's, it's every struggle in the Christian life. To learn to live loved and not afraid. It's why the scripture over and over again tells us, don't be afraid. It's the thing that God tells us more than anything else in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. I love you. It's going to be okay. 
And so the whole, the whole process is to grow out of your fear and into your belovedness. But Paul says it begins with fear, notice. And so the process of faith is something like this. I wish I'd put this on a slide for you. I'm going to get better at doing that in the future. But if you want to understand the process of Christianity, the process of coming to faith and growing in faith, it really is a person who is first defined by ignorance and apathy towards God, who then has an experience that brings them into a, a kind of a sense of a dread or a fear of God, and then, but then they move on past that, that initial sense of fear and dread to a, to a sense of love, the love of God for them and love for God that, that's just coming out of their lives. And that really is important. That's the step. Apathy or ignorance towards God to fear for God, to love the love of God or love for God. And that really is the process that, that it takes. Uh, if you want an illustration at the beginning of uh, the, the book, the, the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress which many of you may be familiar with. Pilgrim, the main character, is described by John Bunyan as a man, here it is, ready to hear his words, as a man clothed in rags with a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. And that is a perfect description. And Christian begins, began to read the book. And what we're told is as he read, here, here again are Bunyan's words, he wept and he trembled and he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, what shall I do? Now, this burden crushed Christian. He felt sure that he was guilty before God. Uh, if he was brought to judgment, he knew that the burden upon his back would become a weight that would, that would sink him into hell. And so, uh, because he couldn't stand it anymore, he finally set off in search of salvation. And, of course, if you know the story, it's really beautiful. You ought to read it, if not. But uh, in the story, it's not until he came to a small hill, and on top of the hill was a cross, and below it, a tomb. And when he came up to the cross, Bunyan writes that the burden fell off his back and tumbled down the hill and fell into the mouth of the tomb and was seen no more. That's the way Bunyan put it. And Christian was then filled with joy and amazement. Now, what does all that mean? See, Bunyan's doing theology there. He's saying this is how you become a Christian, because it was how John Bunyan became a Christian. In his autobiography called Grace Abounding, he, uh, he talks about how for 18 months before his conversion, he was under deep conviction of sin. He was confronted with the, the demands of God's law. He was afflicted and troubled with the thoughts of the day of judgment. He's in prison for, you know, for, for, because he was a pastor before he was converted, uh, but because he had never had an experience like this. He was overcome with despair. Bunyan writes about all this, and really... That is what you see in verse 15 here, the spirit of slavery to fear. This initial sense of dread <clears throat> in light of God's holiness. And the first step in becoming a Christian is to become aware of the reality of God as creator and judge. And you know from reading the Bible, whenever that happens in the Bible, uh, a sense of condemnation and dread comes over the person. People fall to their knees. They try to hide uh, from the blazing light of God's holiness. And so the first thing the spirit does in bringing someone to Christ is to create in them a knowing that they are liable to judgment because of their sins. The very first step is to despair of yourself because you cannot keep the demands of the law. I mean, think about that description again of Christian, clothed in rags, book in hand, a great burden on his back. That's the metaphor. And then, of course, in faith, in coming to faith, like Christian, you see Christ dying for your sin to satisfy the law's demands and then rising again with the keys of death and Hades in his hands, unlocking the prison doors of the captives 
and that that is really, that is really historically what a conversion experience looks like. Now, what's interesting is modern Christianity is designed to help people skip that middle step. We try to take people from being ignorant or apathetic about God right to an experience of God's love without the middle step of that, that spirit of slavery or fear, that, that sense of impending doom or the talk of sin and judgment. And if you want an example, I mean, this is going to get me in a lot of trouble, I know, because I'm going way against the flow of the culture at the moment. But if you want a great example, the sermon from the royal wedding yesterday is a great example, to be honest. Now, uh, it was beautiful. I mean, it was powerful. You ought to watch it. It, it was amazing. Um, but, but, um, oh gosh, I don't want to get in trouble. What do I say and what do I not say here? Sam, I'm trying to follow the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for trying to talk me into getting myself in trouble. I appreciate it. <clears throat> Let me just say this. Uh, there was no talk of sin and judgment and the cross and propitiation. Okay. There's talk of the love of God, which is true, but you can't go to the love of God until you go through all those other things. And I don't want to get into the weeds, so we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but what I want you to see is, is that the result, it's very subtle. It's very subtle. Okay, watch it. It's powerful. I'm, I'm, I thank God. The Brits were freaking out, which I just think is great, right? They were freaking out because we don't do this in church. They went to church. That dude took them to church, right? But, but you got, it's subtle. you got to be careful. Because if, if you skip that mental step, what happens is, is it just creates moralism. The sense of, you know, God is love. Now go and be good and love other people. And that's the essence of Christianity. It sounds good, but it's not. It's not the essence of Christianity. In fact, there's no power there. Jesus said, he who is forgiven little loves little. So the power to love God and others comes from, first, a realization of the extent of your sinfulness. And, secondly, in light of that, the extent of God's grace and forgiveness to you in your sins. George Whitfield, who, of course, was the great revival preacher in the first awakening in America, said, there's no going to Mount Zion but by way of Mount Sinai. So you won't ever really love God as Father, he says, until you fear him first. First, until the first step is to feel the weight of God's holiness and the demands of his law and, and to despair of yourself because you know that you'll never measure up, that you could never be good enough. And if that's how you feel, if, I, if that's how you feel, that's good. It's actually a spiritually healthy place to be, but you can't stay there. That's the point. You can't stay there. So we read in Galatians this week, Galatians chapter 3, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by faith, Paul asks. And what he means there is that you, you, you get the Spirit. The Spirit comes into your life. Just the way you become a Christian is the same way. You get the Spirit when you know you can't do it on your own. That's what he means by faith. When, uh, when uh, you, you get the Spirit, the power for life transformation in the gospel comes when you realize that there's no power in you to make it happen. You don't become a Christian by trying hard. See, that's the mistake. You don't become a Christian by trying hard. You become a Christian when you stop trying. That's when the Spirit comes. And so it's clear then from history that times of revival begin when people who have been relying on themselves suddenly come to a realization that they can't do it on their own. Now, I'm going to tell you, when that happens in my life, I freak out. Because I've been under the delusion that I really was in control. And I feel good when I'm in control, but when I feel out of control is when I start to freak. 
But the point is that it's a, you measure a real spiritual breakthrough by when, you, when something happens so that though you've been relying upon yourself, you suddenly realize that that's a foolish thing to do. And then if you begin to cry out and pray to God, that's when stuff starts to happen. So usually the first step in how revival comes is a deepening awareness of your sinfulness because every deepening awareness of sin creates the opportunity for a deepening realization of the grace of God in Christ, which is greater than our sins. Revival flows from weakness. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. Uh, Weakness isn't a liability. Strength is the liability. Weakness is an opportunity to experience God's power. What matters is what you do with your weakness. If you take if you take it to God, you're opening the door for revival. So that's the first thing. So we see w- how revival comes. But secondly, and I need to I need to pick it up from here. We see secondly what revival is, and it's what Paul's describing here. So let's keep looking in these verses, verses 15 through 16. He says uh, we we it starts with a spirit of slavery to fear, but you don't stay there. You move on, and instead you move into a spirit the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So that the spirit bearing witness with our spirit, testifies to us that we are, in fact, the children of God. And I want to make a number of observations about those verses very quickly. First, I want you to see what Paul's describing is a deep assurance of God's love. So John, John in his letters, writes that instead of falling back into fear, the key is to what he, he, he uses this language. He says we got we got to know and rely on the love of God for us. So underneath every moral failure is a failure to know and rely on God's love. So confidence in God's love is the key to obedience. Every spiritual breakthrough that, that, that you experience comes from something happening where there's a deepening assurance of God's love for you. So in Romans 5.5, 5, which we read a minute ago, Paul writes about the love of God being poured into our hearts. Uh, the older translations say it better, to be honest. It says the love of God being shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. It's this sense of... Um, Oh, do you remember the whole, like, the challenge, like, years ago where you did the challenge where you, like, dumped the thing on your head for, for whatever the cause was? It's like that. It's like the spirit being dumped out upon you is what that language means. But it's interesting. It's the same exact word that you have there in Romans 5 as Acts chapter 2 where the spirit is being poured out on all flesh. And in Acts 10 where the spirit is being poured out on the Gentiles. So the spirit being poured out, the job of the spirit in being given there in all those passages and acts is to convince you that God loves you and cause you to cry out, Abba, Father. So see, there's a difference between knowing the love of God in a general sense and being overwhelmed by a sense of his love. And the language suggests an experience of being overwhelmed, of being drenched, of being overflowing with a sense of God really does love me, so much so that you begin to actually cry out, Abba, Father. So what happens in a revival then is that this becomes something subjective and experiential. It, it's something beyond just believing. There's a consciousness of the truth. That's the best way I know to say it. The text says, again, you cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, you don't just believe. It starts to come out of you. It's accessible to you. It becomes a part of how you live. And then let me give you an example. In Luke 3, when Jesus is baptized there, Luke says that the Spirit comes down on him too. Now think about that for a minute. Have you ever thought about that? The Spirit came down on Jesus. And what happened when the Spirit came down on Jesus? Do you remember? There's a voice from heaven, and it says, You are my Son, in whom I delight with you. I'm well pleased. Now, what is that? <laughs> I mean, what's happening? What's happening there? Of course, we can't be sure, but here's what I would say to you. There's a sense in which 
what's happening there is Jesus' sonship is being authenticated. The love of God is being shed abroad on his heart. He's being given an even deeper experience of his sonship. Thomas Goodwin, the old Puritan, tells a story that illustrates this. He said, well, I've used this before, but it bears repeating. One day there was a, he was watching a father and his son walking along the street, and they were talking and enjoying one another, and it was obvious that the father loved his son very much. And then at one point in their walk, the father bent down, and he swept the little boy up into his arms, and he hugged him, and he kissed him, and he told him how much he loved him. And the little boy put his arms around his father's neck, and he squeezed his dad's neck, and, 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 and there was just this experience of intimacy and closeness and love. And then the father put the little boy down again, and they just kept on walking. And Thomas Gibbon asked the question, he says, was the little boy more a son of his father's, of his father's when he was in his arms than he was walking, when, when he was walking beside him? And of course the answer is no, but legally no difference. Objectively no difference, but subjectively big difference, right? In his father's arms, he was experiencing his father's love. He could feel his father's strength in his embrace. He could he could hear the affectionate tone of his voice as he whispered to him. He could he could he was he was experiencing his sonship, do you see? And Thomas Gibbon went on to say, there is a light that comes and overpowers a man's soul and assures him that he is God's and God is his and that God loves him from everlasting. And it is the light beyond the light of ordinary faith. See, we're, we're not talking about moving beyond truth to a separate spiritual experience. We're, rather, we're talking about moving to a deeper experience of the truth. It's not spiritual experience at the expense of truth. We're talking about experiential truth, a supernatural coming home of the heart, coming home to the heart of the truth. When we teach our kids... To sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. What? For the Bible tells me so. Right? But this is something different. This is something more. It is knowing not because it says so in the Bible. It's knowing because you've become convinced somehow inside. You feel it in here somewhere that you know it's true. See, this is John Wesley feeling spiritually dull and ready to give up preaching and then going to the meeting at Aldersgate where someone read Luther's preface to the Galatians. That means the most boring Bible study in the history of Bible studies that day. And yet, something happened, and what he describes is, he says, as they talked about God's grace, his heart was strangely warm, and everything he had preached his whole life suddenly became real to him. And what happened is there was a new power that birthed a revival that spawned Methodism, both in England and in the United States. See, that's the experience I'm trying to describe, that Paul's describing here in these verses. The third thing is, that it's a direct work of the Holy Spirit. So another, another analogy, if you would allow me. Uh, you don't persuade yourself that you're in love, do you? If you have to do that, can I just give you some advice? You're not in love. It's not a matter of persuasion. It's something that's just there. You become conscious of it. And so Paul describes it as, here's verse 16, as God's Spirit testifying to our spirit that we are loved by God. It's something direct and immediate. You don't reason yourself to this. I mean, that's the whole point. It's the Spirit coming. Here's what it is. It's the Spirit coming powerfully and overthrowing all of your doubts and questions and making you absolutely certain of God's love for you in Christ. It's a different kind of assurance. The commentators say it's probably what the Bible means by the sealing of the Spirit in other places. And in the ancient world, the seal was the authentication. So the Spirit comes, Paul says, and authenticates the reality of your sonship, convincing you by his expert testimony. And so it's external. It's something happening to you. It's the Spirit 
supernaturally at work. And then lastly, and this is, this is the part that's going to get me in trouble, but I want to, I, I really, Lloyd-Jones has convinced me of this. Other people have convinced me of this. And I don't, I'm going to probably, the result is going to be more questions than answers, and that's going to be okay, and we can talk about it. So come and talk to me if, if it's confusing. But what I want to say is that what, what I'm describing here, uh, what Paul's alluding to in Romans 8, though it's not clear here, uh, is that this is something that comes after faith and comes throughout the life of faith, and it comes in varying, varying degrees in periodic times. Now, you can be a Christian and never experience the pouring out of the Spirit like what happened in Acts 2. Now, I say that because the people gathered in Jerusalem on Pentecost were, number one, already believers. Number two, if you read the biblical text, they'd already received the Spirit, at least some of them had, because in John 20, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So, so what happened in Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19 was not a salvation experience. It was what we've been talking about. It was the Father bending down and sweeping up the church into his arms and causing them to experience their sonship in a way that unleashed this spiritual power that motivated them out in joy and love and hope and mission. In our circles, we become so leery of the excesses of Pentecostalism that we quench the spirit. Let's not do that, right? Paul in Ephesians 5.18 says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he's talking to Christians there, right? They have the Spirit, but they need revival. That's how I take Paul's words. So it's possible to be a Christian, but not be experiencing your sonship. If you feel dry, if you feel arid, if your day-to-day faith lacks the fire of the Spirit, here's what I want to say to you this morning, what I want to say to me. Don't take that as normal. That's not normal. What you see in Acts is normal. We need revival. I mean, Winter Haven needs a church in a genuine state of revival. That's the only thing that will change the city. And so lastly, and I need to finish, why then? Why then we need it? Why should we pray? I'm making this case. Why should we pray that God would take us back to Acts 2? And I want to give you two parallel passages to think about. Again, in Luke's three, Luke 3, the Spirit came down on Jesus, marking the beginning of his ministry, and something fundamentally shifted in him because of, of that experience. Uh, It it happened at the beginning of his ministry. It propelled him into his ministry. It's fascinating that in Acts 2, the Spirit came down on the church, marking the beginning of the church's worldwide ministry. And Peter and the apostles were fundamentally changed. They had this new boldness and power and joy because assurance, like we've been talking about, leads to spiritual power. And so all of our spiritual anemia is due to uncertainty about God's love. When you get... The kind of assurance that Paul's describing here, there's power and vitality, and the mission goes forward. And I would just say to you, if Jesus was given an experience like that, and if the early church needed it, then don't you think we might too? Also, consider how these verses end. Do you notice? I mean, what a killjoy Paul is at the very, very end of verse 17 when he reminds us that all of this is true only if we suffer with him. That that is what a living life as a child of God means. And so, in fact, if... Faith leads to more suffering, not less. I mean, don't forget the context of Romans 8. There is no other way to live in this world. There is no exemption from suffering in a fallen world growing with sin. What we need is not the promise of no suffering. What we really need is the possibility of facing suffering with fortitude. So fortitude by a sense of God's presence and love that you can face it and not lose your hope and peace and joy. That no matter how hard things Get, you're living so loved that you can keep on living. That's what we need. Not an easier life. Not a different set of circumstances, but the ability to endure all of the sadness that accumulates in life and not lose heart. 
And when it becomes too much, we don't need less suffering. There's no such thing. We need more of the Spirit. <laughs> we need a deeper sense of God's love. We need revival. It takes courage to live in this world. I mean, do you remember the description of the Christians at Pentecost? The crowds, remember, do you remember this? They thought they were drunk. Why? Well, probably because of their, joy, their joyful fearlessness. I mean, they lacked any inhibition. They were, they were too happy to be afraid of anything or anyone. And that's, of course, what alcohol uh, does to you. If you drink enough of it, it takes away your inhibitions. A glass of wine loosens you up. A lot of really great conversations are better after a glass of wine than they are before. People start to say things and do things that are normally too afraid or too self-conscious to do. So in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit works like wine, with this exception. Alcohol makes you brave by making you stupid. It makes you less aware of reality. You're more courageous. You're less self-conscious than usual because you're not thinking straight. But the Holy Spirit gives you uh, the same joyful courage, but not by making you stupid. Not by making you less aware of reality, but by making you more aware of reality. That you become more courageous, less self-conscious because you're finally thinking straight. You're seeing things for how they really are. And what are, what are things as they really are? If your faith is in Jesus, you are the beloved child of God. That's what we need. So Jesus himself said, the wind of the spirit blows wherever it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is, so it is with the spirit. What we need we cannot ensure it's something that God must do or it won't be done. If you're here, if you're not a Christian, you need salvation, but you can't do it. In fact, all of your doing does nothing. It's something God must do. And it's the same for you, Christian. If you're arid and dry, you need revival, but you can't make that happen. It is, it's the problem of Christianity. True Christianity is supernatural. The supernatural can't be conjured or controlled. It must be given. And so here's my advice to us. Let's take our desperation Take our wanting, take our thirst and our plea and our prayer and bring it to God. That's what he wants, not a plan, not a strategy. All you need is nothing. As long as you have something, the door to God's power remains shut. But when you truly have nothing, when you have nowhere else to go, that's the doorstep to the kind of move of the Spirit that we see here in this text that we so desperately need. Let's not forget that as we even pray to him now. So will you pray with me? And here's what I want to do. As we pray, the team's going to come. Uh, but in light of Pentecost Sunday, if you would allow us, we're just going to take a minute to do something a little different. Uh, and so in the moment, in the quiet moment where you are, as the team comes, uh, we're just going to pray. I'm going to lead you through just a silent reflection of prayer. Remember, the, the early church was told to wait upon the Spirit, and they gathered and they prayed. Jesus said, don't go. Don't go on the mission that I've sent you to until you receive power from me on high. Until the Spirit comes. And so in, in, in keeping with that and not wanting to move out a, a, apart from receiving the provision and the power of the Spirit that, that Jesus has purchased for us, we just stop and take a minute to pray. And so would you just quietly take a minute where you are? This is, this is unusual for us. If it's your first time with us, this is not something we normally do. But this morning we're going to do it on this Pentecost Sunday. So just begin to pray. And here's what I would have you do. Would you confess where you are? Just start to confess your weakness and your need. Where are you running on fumes? Where are you most afraid right now? Where do you feel?
feel most spiritually dry. Now would you give thanks to Jesus? Not only did he die for your sins, but he was raised and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he has sent his spirit. So give thanks. And ask the Father that's in the Spirit upon you to give you a renewed sense of his love for you. If you're not a Christian, ask him to come and so work in your life turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh that you might believe and repent ask him for new power where you feel most weak and then lastly pray just pray and ask God for revival pray for the wind of God's spirit to blow on us as a church Father, uh, this is what we most need. So we confess to you how prone we are to live in our own strength. In the self-sufficiency of our talent and our wealth and our connections, we are prone to self-reliance and we close the door to your power. We know this. And so come. Thank you for the ways that you wrestle us to weakness forgive us for turning what is a great opportunity spiritually into something we complain about but give us hearts like Paul to say no I'd rather boast in the things that make me weak because when I'm weak then I'm strong and would you come in this moment of weakness this time of weakness for us as a church and cause your spirit to blow upon us in revival bring your fire down upon us as your people that we might have not some crazy thing but just just that we would be on fire within our hearts at the thought of the great love that you've shown to us in Jesus Christ it wouldn't wouldn't unleash in us a powerful witness to the city that you've called us to that would bring many people to know you that we might see a genuine move of revival in our church that is our desire and so as clumsy as we are uh, we pray it and we pray it in Jesus name amen amen Hallelujah, what a Savior. Not only has he died for our sins and been raised on the third day, but ascending into heaven, he has sent the Holy Spirit. And so now as he sends us, he does not send us alone. He promises to go with us. And the work of the Spirit this week in you is to bring you out of your fear, cause you to live in your belovedness. So ask him to pour his love and shed his love abroad upon your hearts, and he will do so, and you will find all the strength you need uh, to follow him wherever he may take you in this world that's full of pain and sadness and suffering, that we are victorious in him. And so receive the promise of these words then. This is the benediction spoken over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. <laughs>